Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Outrageous Joy. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, for centuries, uh, armies of the world leveraged the cover of darkness uh, to gain an advantage over their enemies. This changed in the mid-1930s when Germany invented a breakthrough technology for their infantry that later played a significant role in World War II. Although German soldiers had to carry uh, a large power supply on their back and something that looked like a dinner plate and a scope, Uh, This contraption shot beams of infrared light at nearby subjects that would then bounce back to the lens of their scope, creating an image of what they were looking at in the dark. The U.S. military uh, developed shortly after the Germans a similar technology of night vision, uh, about the same time, that was also used in World War II and eventually the Korean War. For, from its infancy uh, to present day, night vision has produced a monochrome image because scientists found the green tint to be the most accurate color for producing sharp images or crisp images. They also found through testing that the human eye is most sensitive to the color green which then allows them to show a dimmer image on the screen and to to conserve power, which, which of course, then extends the life of the scope. Over the next few decades, the technology took significant leaps forward so that uh, by the time the Vietnam War arrived, U.S. troops were equipped with passive scopes that used image-intensifying tubes to amplify ambient light from the moon and the stars, to produce an image from the darkness. Subsequent generations of night vision equipment are now used by law enforcement officials, say, to to find a missing child or a bad guy that they're chasing at night, uh, hunters, and much more. Wouldn't it be great if we could put on a pair of spiritual night vision goggles Like when we're walking with the Lord in the dark. I mean, wouldn't it be great if you could just put on some night vision goggles when you're walking with the Lord and you just can't see what he's doing? And if you could put the goggles on, you could all of a sudden see what he was up to. Or you could see some at least glimmer of light in the dark place that he has you. Well, according to the Apostle Paul, there's something that God invented long before World War II that works even better. And so we're resuming our series in the book of Philippians today called Outrageous Joy. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Philippians chapter 1 and take out the sermon notes that are in the worship folder you received when you came in. I've got uh, a lot of notes for you to to take, Uh, first of all, so that maybe you can review them during your devotional time this week or save them for uh, another day when you need some encouragement. Uh, Taking notes, I have found, also makes the message go faster and keeps you awake, too. So um, let's review our theme verse in Philippians 4.4. If you haven't done so already, I want to encourage you to underline that or highlight that in your Bible. Uh, Let's say it out loud together. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, Now, I realize when I just asked you guys to say that verse with me, some of you thought to yourself, that's outrageous. I am not going to read that verse out loud. I shouldn't have to. And in fact, I don't feel like reading that verse out loud. That's okay. Neither do I. um, But this is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. Um, You see, he knew that we and the Philippians 
would struggle to rejoice in the Lord. And that we would rarely feel like it. And that's one of the things that Paul is going to drive home in this letter, is rejoicing in the Lord, especially when we don't feel like it. Thus, the title of this series, Outrageous Joy. The dictionary defines outrageous as uh, that which exceeds the limits of what is usual, something unusual, something unconventional, or that goes beyond expected standards. So to have outrageous joy is to rejoice in the Lord when the world, our circumstances, and every ounce of our being tells us not to. However, Paul says, throughout this letter, we can and should rejoice regardless. That's what is unusual. That's what's unconventional. That is what's outrageous about the kind of joy Paul's talking about throughout this letter. So, let's briefly review the apostle's circumstances so we can understand why he is asking us to do this outrageous thing called rejoicing when we don't feel like it. Uh, Let me bring you up to speed and give you some context on how Paul ended up where he is. Um, And and I think it's going to be important as we move forward through the passage we're going to look at today because you need to know what Paul went through to get to where he is now. Uh, So if there was anyone besides Jesus in the New Testament who could have adopted a victim mentality, it it was the Apostle Paul. Uh, The last few chapters of the book of Acts tell us that when Paul arrived back in Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, uh, he was enthusiastically greeted by fellow Christians. However, the Jews had been scheming and spreading lies in hopes of getting Paul killed and stopping the spread of the gospel. I mean, as if just living day to day knowing that somebody is trying to hunt you down and kill you isn't enough stress? Well, eventually uh, they, they accused him of crimes he didn't commit and had him illegally arrested by Roman authorities. And then he was taken under the protection of 450 soldiers to the coastal town of Caesarea to stand trial before the governor. After two years of being caught up in political tape, he's sitting in prison just waiting for his trial, just waiting and waiting and waiting. Paul asserted his rights as a Roman citizen and requested to meet or to appeal his case to the Caesar of the entire Roman Empire in Rome. Eventually, he was granted a trip across the Mediterranean Sea to the empire's capital with Roman guards accompanying him. Oh, but as if his, his journey had not been challenging enough already, this voyage was meticulously chronicled by Luke in Acts chapter 27 and 28. <laughs> The ship he is on encounters the storm of the century, is shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Over three months later, Paul finally is able to get on another ship that winters in Malta, and then to finally get over to Rome, where once he gets there, he's placed under house arrest, chained to a soldier 24 hours a day, and forgotten for another two years. It's during these two years, which, as you might remember me saying uh, in previous messages in this series, it's about 60 to 62 A.D., that Paul writes letters to the Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. These are commonly called the prison epistles. And so, with that, Paul is sitting in jail, well, under house arrest, in Caesar's palace, chained 24 hours a day to a Roman soldier, awaiting trial before Caesar as a Roman citizen, and not knowing what the future holds for him. 
And so we pick up in verse 19 of chapter 1. And yes, I will rejoice. Oh, there's that word again. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Here's number one on your outline. The first truth that Paul teaches us is that having an eternal perspective increases, it increases our hopefulness. It increases our hopefulness. You know, I first heard the term uh, eternal perspective as a college student attending a Camps Crusade Bible study. The term really wasn't defined for me, though. Um, I was just told it was something I had to have as a Christian. Oh, I need to have an eternal perspective. Okay, good. good, good. Do you know where, where do I get one of those at? Can I buy that somewhere? Is it at the bookstore? What? The term just seemed like it was a part of the Christian vernacular to me, or just Christianese, but it really wasn't explained. And much to my surprise, over the next several years after I graduated from college and then I went to seminary, I've read hundreds of books, I've heard hundreds of sermons, I can't recall anybody, and maybe they have and I just don't remember it, but I can't recall anybody defining what an eternal perspective is. And so I prayed and I dug real hard this week, in my studies in order to try and solve this mystery because I don't like to throw words around, Christian, Christianese words, without us knowing what they mean. And so here's, my, here's a definition that I'm working on, and this is on your outline. I want to encourage you to jot it down. Um, an eternal perspective is viewing my life on earth through the lens of God's transcendent work throughout eternity. It's viewing my life on earth through the lens of God's transcendent work throughout eternity. So, so like night vision goggles that I talked about a few minutes ago, having an eternal perspective is, is letting the, the lens of Scripture tell us how we should feel instead of letting our surroundings determine our emotions. It, it, in, it includes focusing on God's big picture plan for our lives and remembering that our time on earth is temporary. But our time with Jesus in eternity is forever. So having an eternal perspective then should radically transform the way a professing believer of Jesus Christ lives. It should totally just mess up our priorities and rearrange them to be in line with the Lord's. It transformed Paul's life. We can see it in the text. Uh, let me show you. In verse 20, notice he says, I know that I will not be at all ashamed. One thing to help Paul put on an eternal perspective was the, the sold-out life he already lived for Christ. And so his reasoning was, hey, if I get a chance to stand for Caesar, that's great. It'll be a thrill to represent the Lord in front of the most powerful man in the entire world. And if I die and stand before the Lord, I'll have no regrets, wishing that I had done more for him on this earth. Win-win. That's how Paul saw it. Then he says, I know that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Do you see how making his aim to glorify Christ no matter what totally changed Paul's perspective? So, so having the mind of Christ under house arrest, chained to a soldier for preaching the gospel, falsely accused, people trying to kill him, shipwrecked, all the stuff that he had to do. Oh, but I forgot to mention, the Jews beat him to a pulp in Jerusalem before he was arrested and sent to Caesarea. Important detail, I forgot. I apologize. 
But all that, in essence, allowed Paul to say, so long as Jesus is glorified and the gospel is spread, I don't care what happens to me. That freed him up from the disappointment that comes from thwarted, self-centered plans so he could hope in something that God is always going to do. And that is, the Lord is always going to glorify his son. And Paul knows that. And because Paul was totally, totally committed to glorifying Christ, he figured either the Lord's going to get me out of prison so I can come to see you Philippians again. He mentions that in verse 26. Or he's going to take me home to be with him. Win, win. Great position I'm in. I don't know about you. I'll just speak for myself. Um, I'm really good at the victim mentality. If I was in Paul's shoes, or sandals, excuse me, I would have been like, really, Lord? All I've been trying to do is serve you? And, and you let me get beat up? You let me get arrested? You, there was no book deal? There was no conference tour? You know, what's going on here? And now this? What? I'm just sitting here again? I'm in a holding pattern? For another two years, my life's just flying by. I could be doing more out there, planting churches. But something else that I think helped Paul have eager expectations and hope was his confidence in God's goodness. He doesn't state it explicitly, but it's in the text implicitly. The apostle would have remembered the popular refrain from the Psalms. Uh, uh, it's in Psalm 106, Psalm 107, 118, 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Or, or uh, Paul would have remembered what Jeremiah wrote. Who uh, Jeremiah the prophet had in a very, very difficult ministry. But Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 25, The Lord is good. To those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. And so one of the many blessings of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is gaining access to the Lord's goodness. Because God's word makes it clear those who do not know Christ, those who are apart from Christ, are under his wrath. They don't get access to the Lord's promises. They don't get their prayers heard. They don't, they don't receive blessings. That's, that, those kinds of things, are, those benefits are reserved for God's children, those who have repented of their sins and by faith trusted in Christ for their salvation. Now, the catch, though, is, and this is, this is the rub. We struggle with this, man. I know I do. Again, I'm just talking about myself. I don't want to call you out because I know you don't struggle in your walk with the Lord. So... The the rub is, we have to remember the Lord defines good. We want to define it. We we have our own definition of good. Well, good is, you know, you, Lord, doing everything I ask you to do, right? Keeping me comfortable, providing for all my needs and my wants, and, you know, that's good. But that's not how the Lord sees it. It was this confidence in the Lord's goodness and I think the understanding of what God's goodness is in his character that helped uh, the 17th century Puritan writer Richard Sibbs conclude this. He says it's so much better than I ever could. He says, Whatsoever is good for God's children, they shall have it. For all is theirs to help them toward heaven. Therefore, if poverty be good, they shall have it. If disgrace or crosses be good, they shall have them, for all is ours to promote our greatest prosperity. You see, for the believer, I think getting on the same page as the Lord when it comes to time and eternity and our life on earth is so critical 
for your faith. It's so critical for your faith to survive. If, if your goal in life is to get Jesus to serve you when he saved you so that you might serve him, you'll never hope in the Lord because you'll constantly be at odds and disappointed in him. So it is critical that you get the position figured out. Who's supposed to serve who? If you're always asking or expecting the Lord to do what you want, you'll always be disappointed in him. This brings us to our big idea for today, and that is that having an eternal perspective helps us see God's future plans despite our present circumstances. Having an eternal perspective helps us see God's future plans despite our present circumstances. Having this kind of night vision helps us realize that our best life isn't supposed to happen now, but rather later. It also reminds us that how we live on earth will affect how we live in eternity, but what happens to us on earth will not last for an eternity. So how are God's future plans supposed to help us now? Well, by giving us the hope of a future that is exponentially better than our present. The hope that all things will work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. So having an eternal perspective helps us see God's future plans despite our present circumstances. Look back at the text with me, verses 21 to 23. Paul continues. He says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh... That means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Here's number two on your outline. Having an eternal perspective protects us from worldliness. Having an eternal perspective protects us from worldliness. Verse 21 is arguably one of the most personal and powerful verses in all of Paul's writings. Its significance cannot be overstated. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In fact, I would urge you to underline it, highlight it, uh, post it, tattoo it, memorize it, whatever you need to do in order to get verse 21 into your head and into your heart, do it. (laughs) The apostle is looking at his immediate future, realizing the Lord may providentially extend his ministry, by getting him out of prison, or Paul may die as a martyr for the faith. So in the next few verses, Paul wrestles with how he feels about what might be coming. Of course, he had a lot of time to think about it. So notice in in verse 21, to live is Christ. The apostle uses what Greek... New Testament scholars call the present active infinitive. Now, I, you might remember I don't get into the Greek exegesis very often, and I only try to do it when I think it's very significant, and it is here. To live is Christ. It's the present active infinitive. It means the present tense, 
So he was already living for Christ. The active voice tells us he is the subject that chose to live for Christ. It was not forced upon him. It was a choice he made. And then finally, this is the most important part, the infinitive tells us there is no time limit set on Paul's living for Christ or on how far he's willing to go in order to do so. To live as Christ. I'm already doing it, and I have set no limit on how long I'll do it or how far I'll go. Whatever it takes. Every ounce of Paul's body and soul were marinated in, saturated with, and permeated by Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 22 that he doesn't say that staying on earth longer will give him more time to check a few more things off his bucket list, or to travel and see more of the world, or to uh, spend more time out on the coast collecting seashells or to enjoy his favorite hobby. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says staying on earth longer means he can do even more for Jesus. That's, that's what the fruitful labor means in the ESV in verse 22. If the Lord allows me to stay, I get to do more for him. Love that. More on that in a few minutes. Next, in verse 21, the second half of the verse, to die is gain. Gain comes from an old Greek word that means to profit or earn interest on money. Paul didn't mean this literally. Instead, he meant it figuratively. He, he, was, he viewed dying as profitable because it meant being united with the Savior he loved. Both the Living Bible and the Amplified Bible do a great job of capturing this sentiment. Um, the Living Bible, will show this to you on the keynote screen behind me, uh, they render it this way. For me, or for to me, excuse me, living means opportunities for Christ and dying. Well, that's better. Because I get to be with Jesus. Uh, the Amplified Bible, which is, it's not meant to be really readable. It focuses on word-for-word accuracy, and I always describe the Amplified Bible as they sort of throw mud at the wall with several English words to kind of describe the very detailed original language. So, so they use several English words to describe one Greek word. And so for me, in the Amplified, to live is Christ. He's my source of joy, my reason to live, and to die is gain, for I'll be with him in eternity. So, so what's happening here is in verses 21 and 23, this battle-hardened apostle pulls back the curtain over his heart to share the tension that he feels between his love for Christ and his love for God's people. He, 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 for, for, for you, it might be your love for Christ and your love for your family, your kids, grandkids. Uh, that would be a common tension for the American evangelical, I think. I, I, I love Jesus. I want to go be with him. Can't wait to be with him. But, golly, I, would, I, I want to be here for my kids so I can pour into their lives more and help them learn to walk with the Lord. And so his conclusion in verse 23 is that he would rather just go to heaven to be with Christ, but it's not a suicide or a death wish, as some have suggested. But rather, it's, it's just Paul saying to the Philippians, you know, I love you guys, but I love Jesus more. I just, I just love Jesus more. Now, there's something else that verse 21 reveals about Paul, and that is that he had outrageous joy because he had detached himself from the world by rejecting worldliness. So what is worldliness? Well, here's a definition that I've used in the past, and I want to share this with you because, again, I don't like throwing out Christianese without defining it. I don't want to assume everybody knows what it is. So... Worldliness, according to the scriptures, especially 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 15, John talks about it. Um, it's clinging to the temporal values, goals, and thinking of the world. 
clinging to the temporal values, goals, and thinking of the world. It's, it's thinking the way the world does about relationships, retirement, time, sex, money, material possessions, entertainment, physical appearance, success. It, it's the pursuit of pleasure and satisfaction of self that defines the life of unbelievers. Unbelievers, they live their life sort of by the motto of, it's all about me, I'm going to seek and find every pleasure I can while I have time, because when I die, that's it, it's too late. You only live once, YOLO! That's the mindset of the world. Worldliness is living as though this life is the only life you have to live and there's no life beyond the grave. It's talking and walking like the world so much that there's no visible difference between the person who claims to follow Christ and the person who's rejected Christ. So worldliness is a bad thing in the scriptures. And sadly... Uh, Paul calls the Corinthians worldly in his letter to them. Uh, John warns his audience that he's writing to, as I referenced in 1 John 2, to not be worldly because it is something the Lord does not like at all. Now, A.W. Tozer explains in his Christmas uh, devotional titled, From Heaven, why so many professing Christians appear to be lukewarm about meeting the Lord. Why they're like, eh. Tozer writes, the longing to see Christ that burned in the breasts of those first Christians seems to have burned itself out. What he did for us seems to be more important than what he is to us. Another reason for the absence of real yearning for Christ's return is that Christians are so comfortable in this world that they have little desire to leave it. Tozer wrote that during his ministry in the 1950s, by the way. So let me say what he's saying in another way, just in case you missed the point. An unbiblical attachment to the world will always prevent you from obtaining outrageous joy. So if you struggle with worldliness, you need to deal with that because it will continue to undermine your desire to find joy. So, having an eternal perspective helps us see God's future plans despite our present circumstances. Well, well, how, Pastor Kerry? I'm not quite getting it. How? Okay, well, here's another example of how. By getting us to love Christ more than anything else this world can offer, an eternal perspective helps us yearn for the Lord more than anybody else on this earth. Do I love my kids? Yeah. I love Jesus more, though. (laughs) Do I love my wife? Yeah. I love Jesus more. So having an eternal perspective protects us from worldliness. Next, let's look finally at the last uh, uh, three verses. Uh, verses 24 to 26. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Here's Paul's uh, last point for us this morning. Having an eternal perspective decreases our selfishness. It decreases our selfishness. You see, when our hope is wrapped up in seeing Jesus Christ, and our hearts are detached from this world, it frees us up 
to put the needs of others before our own. Simply put, living for Christ allows us to focus on spreading the gospel and helping others grow spiritually. That's what Paul's saying here. He models this kind of unselfishness in verse 24 when he writes, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You know, I think I want to stay so that I can help you guys. He says it explicitly in verse 25, for your progress and joy in faith. He's saying that their lack of spiritual growth, progress, and inability to rejoice while suffering significant needs. Sorry, let me, let me back that up a little bit here. I lost track of where I was. I think I have a typo in my manuscript. He's saying their lack of spiritual growth and their struggle to rejoice while suffering has to take precedence over his personal preference to be with Christ. Those are two big needs he just identified as the Philippians. I need to stay and help fix those two issues. You're not growing spiritually, and you're not rejoicing like you should be. So I need to stay, instead of departing to be with Christ. Paul's ministry mindset reminds me of a handful of couples I've had the privilege of knowing over the years who retired from their careers into full-time ministry. Crazy, man. It's, it's, can I say outrageous? (laughs) I mean, unlike many American Christians, these godly couples saw the sunset years of their lives as a chance to do more for the Lord, as opposed to pursuing the pleasures they didn't have time to pursue when they were working full-time. So they didn't travel the world or you know, buy a retirement home in Florida or move out to the coast or uh, buy an RV and just drive wherever they could. No, uh, these couples and just a handful that I've had the privilege of knowing in the last 20 years, they decided, man, now that we're freed up from having to work full-time, we can do more for Jesus in the final years of our lives. They chose to serve more after retirement, not only because they love the Lord, but also because they knew retirement is not a concept taught in the Scriptures. It's an American concept. So having an eternal perspective helps us see God's future plans despite our present circumstances. How? By making us unselfish like Christ so that we look like Him when we go home. By helping us to see that serving the Lord is more impactful, more rewarding, and satisfying than serving ourselves. That's what an eternal perspective can do. So, applications. We know that the Lord calls us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Uh, We know that Jesus said during his ministry, if you love me, then obey my commands. And so uh, I always like to close with just a couple recommended applications. And applications just answer the question, what must I do now that I've read this? So that we don't just, as, as James says in James 1, look into the word like a mirror. No one would look at a mirror and then turn and walk away. The purpose of looking in a mirror is to see what needs to be fixed. Well, in the same way, we open God's word to see what do we need to adjust in our lives, so that we're in line with God's desires for us. And so here's, here's an app, the first application that comes to mind, and it's study the scriptures on heaven and the return of Christ. St- study the scriptures on heaven and the return of Christ. One way to develop an eternal perspective is, is to learn what the scriptures say about life beyond the grave, Sadly, a lot of American evangelicals don't know that much about life beyond the grave and what they're looking forward to. So it's hard to look forward to something if you know little about it. And there are tons of resources available that can guide you to the scripture passages on this topic. I mean, one that comes to mind off the top of my head is Randy Alcorn's book, simply titled Heaven. It's rather thick. But Alcorn's a great writer, and he's, 
he's able to write in plain language and, and explain conce difficult concepts and make them simple. So uh, Alcorn's book, too, I think, on heaven, um, if you don't want to tackle the thick, full, hardcover version, uh, I'm fairly certain there's a devotional version that breaks things down into bite-sized pieces. So you could, you could work through the material in your devotions over the course of, let's say, a year is probably what it covers. Now, I feel compelled to give a quick pastoral caution on this topic because of things I hear people say in our church and other churches I've served, and that is this. Be, be careful that you don't look forward to or talk about seeing your loved ones in heaven more than Jesus. Be careful. Because it might be an indicator that you love your loved ones more than Jesus. That, that's, that's a problem. <laughs> because, well, here's my best attempt to illustrate it. Doing so would be exponentially more rude to Jesus than, say, going to a destination wedding to see the other guests instead of the bridegroom who invited you and paid for all your travel expenses. I mean, it would be like, hey, hey Jesus, it's great. Mom, Dad! That, that is so not... <laughs> Why? He saved you so you could be reunited with your loved ones. So, so be careful there. Don't offend the Lord by looking forward to seeing other people in heaven more than him. Because it's his heaven and he paid for you to get there. You're not there without him. Second application. It comes to mind, if you haven't already, change your life's purpose to Philippians 1.21. Or if it used to be that, get it back to that. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For the person who professes to follow Christ, anything less than living for Jesus is just using Jesus. You're just using him. It, it's saying with your life, Jesus, I, I want what you can do for me, and that's more important than what you are to me. I need your help to fulfill my will for my life. So if you could just use some of your power, which I didn't have, to help me fulfill my will for my life, that'd be great, Jesus. See how subtle and easy it is just to turn that around? Peter says in Acts that God made Jesus both Lord and Christ. That means if he's not Lord of all in your life, then he's not your Lord at all. A.W. Tozer once prophetically wrote, The Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. The Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. So, if you haven't already, change your life's purpose to Philippians 1.21. Several years ago, I heard a story about two men sharing a hospital room who were both seriously ill one man was allowed to sit up for an hour each afternoon to help drain the fluid from his lungs. His bed sat next to the only window in the room. The other man's ailments required him to spend all of his time on his back. And he was on the inside of the room, away from the window. Now, I think this was before the time when TVs were installed in every hospital room, so all the men could do to pass the time was to talk and tell stories for hours on end. They exchanged stories about their families, their homes, their careers, military service, etc. And every afternoon, there was a one-hour break 
from the monotony of storytelling when the patient by the window was allowed to sit up and he would describe to his roommate what he was seeing out the window. The window overlooked a a park with a small lake in the middle of it. The man would describe in high-definition detail ducks playing in the water and children laughing as they climbed on playground equipment and lovers walking hand-in-hand around the lake, trees green with foliage providing shade for family picnics. And as he listened, the man lying on his back would close his eyes and just imagine this picturesque scene. One afternoon, while listening to another update on what was happening at the park, the man lying on his back began to entertain thoughts of jealousy. Why should he have all the pleasure of seeing everything while I can never sit up? It's not fair. And when these thoughts were first planted in his head, the man felt shame. But as the days passed, they germinated into feelings of resentment that turned him sour. He began to feel he should be the one sitting by that window. So much so that it began to disturb his sleep. And so one night, while laying on his back, staring at the ceiling, brooding over the fact that he wasn't by the window... his friend by the window began to cough and choke on the fluid in his lungs. The jealous man could see his window friend groping for the call button to alert the nurses that he needed help, but he did nothing to help. He decided not to push his own call button, which could have summoned the nursing staff with time to spare. And in less than five minutes, his hospital roommate passed away. The following morning, the nurse came in and discovered the lifeless body in the bed next to the window. She summoned the attendants and had the body taken away. And as soon as it seemed appropriate, the man who was lying on his back asked if he could be moved next to the window. The nurse obliged, rolled his bed over, made sure he was comfortable, and then she left him alone. Slowly and strenuously and eagerly, he propped himself up on his elbows to take his first look out this window he had heard so much about over the last several weeks. And much to his surprise and horror, all that was there was a blank brick wall. Having an eternal perspective is so much more than just positive thinking. It's it's knowing God's word so well that you can envision the future he's promised you regardless of how dark it gets. And that's why having an eternal perspective helps us see God's future plans despite our present circumstances. Having that kind of perspective can unlock outrageous joy. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, uh, I, I, I realize there may be some here listening today, or maybe listening online, that feel trapped in their circumstances. They may even feel it's dark. They're they're praying, they're they're spending time in your word, they're worshiping, they're, they're doing their best to walk with you, and yet they can't see you, 
and they don't know, they can't see what you're doing. Lord, would you please help them by your grace and by your spirit to gain an eternal perspective. It's, it's something we need your help with, Lord, because first of all, we're, we're not born naturally thinking that way. It's something that's supernatural. And, and, and secondly, we live in a world that bombards us every day with temporal thinking. And so, Lord, as, as we put forth the effort of learning your word and letting the word work on us and change the way we think, would you, Lord, by your spirit, change us? So that no matter how dark it gets or how scary the circumstances get, we can have outrageous joy because we know the plans you've got for us. Father, I, I, I want to pray for those who are in difficult circumstances right now, too, that you would not only provide a way out in your perfect timing, but also, Lord, that you would redeem those difficult circumstances for good to where they would come out of them deeper and more intimate with you, just having a deeper walk, a more depth in their faith, and a closer intimacy with you. And finally, Lord, would you, would you help us as we, as we read your word and we, we do small group Bible studies and we, we, we do our devotions throughout the week, Lord, would you help us to get to the point where we can discern worldliness throughout our week, where we can see the difference, as, as Paul prayed in, in earlier in chapter 1, that, that the Philippians would be able to distinguish between what is good and what is evil to tell the difference. Would you help us, Lord, to gain that discernment? We love you and we thank you. We thank you that those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ alone for their salvation have a great future ahead that will last forever. And we thank you, Lord, that what we're experiencing now on earth is temporary. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.